If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. It should be marked Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. How many of you, you're not in trouble if you're not in trouble if you don't raise your hand? How many of you have ever read the book of Nehemiah on your own? Higher. I can't see all that. So it looks about 40% of you. About 40% of you have read the book of Nehemiah. Good. Uh, so I've read it too, and it doesn't matter if you've read it before. You're going to be blessed as if you've never read it before because that's the way the, the Word of God works. It's fresh every time. Those of you who haven't read it, uh, I believe that God really will speak to you as well that uh, say, wow, I might have danced around that book or missed it altogether. I've never read the Old Testament, and I believe that the Lord is going to use this in a great way. But we're going to start this morning in chapter 1. We're only going to read the first four verses. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we're going to do a good bit of overview so you have a lay of the land, so to speak. We did this Wednesday night with Colossians. But there's also some things that I think spiritually God wants to tell us right now, even at the outset, not just with the background, uh, but to understand how that background is impacting us in our hearts, how God wants to soften us, and he wants to do a work in us as we see here in Nehemiah. So starting with verse 1, verses 1 through 4, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, these are always fun words to say, came to pass the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that's modern day Iran today, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, their survivors are left from the captivity in the province, are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. So it was that when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying, there, uh, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, whatever preparation and notes, well beyond anything that you've uh, laid on my heart, Lord, that your spirit would speak through me to each person, to me, Lord. I pray that your anointing would be on this time. Lord, you'd remove every distraction. Lord, fill this place with the power and the presence and the person of Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to us. You're a wonderful counselor. Lord, we want to hear your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, I want to give you a little background first. And so we've got some things to take a look at. The title of this message, even though we have a little broader series, is called Join Together. The title this morning, if you're taking notes, is When We Care. I think you can see out of the gate that Nehemiah cared, didn't he? You can see just the way he responds, the question he asks. We can tell that he cared. And God wants us to care. I don't know what you care about in life, what's most important to you, but God wants you and I to care about the things that matter to him. We looked at that last week as well in Matthew, Mark chapter 6, because Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. He cared about those things more than he cared about the things that were like, well, does this make me feel good? And so Nehemiah cared, and God wants us to care. And we'll take a look at that 
uh, in just a few minutes. But first, by way of just kind of background, as I mentioned, uh, Shushan, uh, Nehemiah receives this word. He's in uh, ancient Persia. Now, some of you in the 70s, you remember when Iran was still called Persia, right? You might remember uh, before the Ayatollahs came in and everything, and it was uh, the Persia, I think, far, I don't know how far back, but there was a time that uh, it was still called that, and you know, Iran has been the modern-day name. But if you see here, Shushan is right here. It's also called Susa. You'll also hear it referred to as Susa. And then you've got Jerusalem about 900 miles away. Now, it's not 900 miles on a straight line. The route that they would take would be up the Euphrates and then down through Syria and over to Jerusalem. That, and that still remains the highway today. As a matter of fact, you can drive from Jerusalem to Susa. You might not, I might not recommend it, but you can um, without a military detail. Uh, but you could drive it hypothetically because uh, there is a highway system that goes from Jerusalem to Susa and through those countries and through Jordan and uh, Syria and uh, all, all the way over into Iraq and Iran. But uh, that's where Nehemiah is. He's in Susa. Now, he's Jewish, and he ends up here because of the captivity way back when Babylon had taken over and had destroyed Israel. He ends up in Iran. Well, at that time, originally Babylon, and later it becomes uh, the Persian Empire. So he's there, but he's asking questions about his homeland. He's asking questions about Jerusalem. How goes it in Jerusalem? How are things going there uh, in our city, in our native city? Now, there in uh, also, uh, also in Susa, uh, the Persian Empire had a couple of different capitals. Like, we have Washington, D.C., uh, but they had three or four capitals. But Susa ended up being, in large part, the central place. It was the winter palace area of the kings, and they went there and made more decisions, it appears, in Susa than just about anywhere else. So it ends up being the seat of power. Uh, it, in some respects, you know how Washington, D.C., everything is done there, but a lot happens in New York City, too, from a, from a source of uh, power. But Susa uh, was part of the capital system, and it ends up being the place where Nehemiah is attending the king as a cupbearer. Later, we'll get more into his role. That's not what we're going to be going to say. What, we're going to learn about his role as a cupbearer. We will, but not as much today, more in chapter 2. Uh, by the way, if you're looking at the map, if you just kind of uh, like history and stuff, you'll see actually this road that goes all the way from Susa to Sardis. You ever heard of Sardis? If you study the New Testament, you'll see Sardis is there, and Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis in Revelation uh, in the letters to the seven churches of Asia, which, as we talked about on Wednesday, is modern-day Turkey. Uh, but uh, that royal road, you know that uh, they could take, that was the f one of the first information superhighways because they had outposts for, uh, you ever heard of the Pony Express? The Pony Express, they would actually go from station to station and they would haul and you had to have guys that knew how to ride really well, could ride, they didn't mind messing up their back or anything like that, ride. They just rode really fast, right? And they could actually make the route from Susa, so if the king sent out a decree to go from Susa to Sardis in seven days flat. And they would actually have these guys on horses. They would barely touch the station. They'd deliver, and then the next guy would ride on. And that was their information superhighway at the time. And then uh, this was originally started under the Greeks and Alexander the Great, and then Persians perfected it, and, and uh, the Rome would go on to use the same royal road under the Roman Empire, and Rome, Rome then actually expanded more roads than that by the time you get to the time of Jesus. 
But anyway, that, uh, that gives you a little bit of a background on the geographic location. Nehemiah's in Susa. He's a long way from Jerusalem. He's not in his homeland. He is part and parcel there because of the captivity. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a timeline, a historical timeline. This also helps uh, frame some of this for you uh, as far as the setting here. This is under the Persian Empire, and if you've heard of the Persian kings, you've probably heard a lot of these guys, right? Cyrus the Great. He initiated the empire. He, he conquered Babylon, so Cyrus conquered Babylon, and then Persia took the reins from Babylon. They were the world's dominant empire. Then came Darius the Great, and he was, he was a great king, and you'll hear a lot about him in, in history as well. Uh, you have Xerxes, and then you have Artaxerxes. Now, um, there were two other kings in between, and, but they were just they were short time periods. One was eight years, um, and then the other one was even shorter than that. So, uh, but these are the four main kings. These are the ones that you'll hear most about from a historical com, uh, time. Uh, and then Artaxerxes is the king that's in power as Nehemiah is speaking here. So he's under that fourth king right there. Then you have uh, Persian power, as I mentioned. It took uh, control in about 538 to 539 B.C. And you have the status of Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem was destroyed, nearly leveled to the ground in 586 B.C. Some of the captives returned in 539 B.C. And you can see that 42,360 Jews returned to Jerusalem from ba uh, Babylonian captivity under Cyrus's decree. Next, we have the temple reconstruction. The temple was finished in 516 B.C. You ever heard of Zerubbabel? So Zerubbabel was there, and Joshua was the high priest, and he came with Zerubbabel. He came there uh, to the temple area, and, and they rebuilt the temple in... I'm sure I got, if I don't have my glasses on, I can't see. The law was reintroduced in, five, uh, in 457 B.C., by Ezra the priest and the scribe. And Ezra, he preaches and he teaches and he records the events that took place. Uh, and then he likely writes Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we have uh, Nehemiah's question. This takes place in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. Now, Nehemiah, he's greatly burdened and he's granted a return. He, when he asks this question, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But he's going to ask this question, and he's going to be given the opportunity uh, to return, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 2. But at this point, he's just asking the question, and we see how burdened he is. Now, the walls of Jerusalem, how long do you think it took? 52 days. You say, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty cool, 52 days to rebuild the walls. It took place in 445 B.C., <laughs> As we walk through this timeline, 52 days, but the amazing thing was it took 52 days to rebuild it, um, and ultimately, his question, he says, I, I want to refortify, I want to rebuild, I want to see this done, but how in the world can this happen? Because it's been nearly 100 years and it's never happened. Other people have been trying to do this work. What had not been accomplished in 100 years God was going to accomplish in less than two months. Is that not amazing? Over, not over, but nearly 100 years, it had not happened. 
And God wants to do something in this man, through this man, in less than two months. And that, so that brings me to a question for us. What could God do in 52 days or in 52 weeks? Now, the reason I say 52 weeks is because you know that when you hear 52, a lot of times you might think, well, hey, there's 52 weeks in a year, right? And we just started the new year. And I'm saying that this 52 weeks is retroactive to the last two weeks. We have all of 2018. We started 2018 in uh, Mark chapter 6. And we know that God wants to do a great work in this church, in this ministry. That's not a coincidence that Septic's having its worst day the day we start. That's not a coincidence because the enemy wants to fight against the work of God, right? He wants to fight against your life. He wants to come against you. That's what we talked about, the whole armor of God, that we quench the fiery darts of the enemy. God wants to do a work. And I, if you're saying, what is 52 days from now? I've already done the math for you. It's Wednesday, March the 7th. Wednesday, March the 7th. As a matter of fact, I might be talking to our worship leader about maybe a, a night of worship and prayer that night. Say, what could God do in the next 52 days? What could he do in the next 52 days? Uh, over, nearly 100 years, the wall had not been rebuilt. Revival had not come. There was partial stuff. There was partial stuff. Th there's been partially great works that we've seen God do here, but there's a greater work that God wants to accomplish. So in 52 days, but beyond that, what can he do in the next year? And I put some things that has never happened. What could God do in your life or in this church that has never happened, is still undone, is still unfinished, seems impossible, lacks resources, whether in your life personally, in your family, in others, or in this church? Everybody can relate to something on that list. Everybody can relate. Everybody has some piece of your wall that is still broken down. Everybody has some piece of your life that has not ever been repaired. Everybody has something that lacks a resource. Everybody has something that say, well, I've been praying about this for years, and nothing's really changed. Nehemiah, he could relate. He'd say, here it is almost 100 years later, and the gates are still burned. The walls are still broken down. The people are still petrified over there. They're still in distress. They're still in fear. They're still in anguish. Nehemiah would probably think, what could possibly be done? And God says, give me 52 days. Give me 52 days. How about 52 weeks in this year? And so, now you know I like poetry. And I also like hashtags. This popped into my head. So here it is. What could God do in 52? What could God do in 52? What could he do? 52 weeks. 52 days, somewhere in between 52 days and 52 weeks. I don't know. But what could he do? We know that historically he did a great work in 52 days, and we're going to be taking a look at that here. Now, some prominent themes. There are some themes here we want to take a look at. There's some macro themes, but I've kind of gone beyond that. Uh, these are themes as we go through. See if any of these would be valuable in your life. Number one, prayer, intercession, and fasting. Starts right in the first chapter. Immediately, uh, Nehemiah starts to weep, he starts to pray, and he starts to fast. And we, we started the first Wednesday of the month fasting. 
We'll be fasting the last Wednesday of the month. That's for the church as a whole. Many of you have signed up and are fasting over Pastor Randy's healing and, and others that are sick. And uh, any of you didn't sign up. I know many of you do as well. But God wants his house to be a house of prayer. And he wants us to learn to intercede and to fast for things that matter to the Lord. Number two, God is not forsaken, nor has he forgotten. Isn't that good to know? It feels sometimes, you might think, well, God's forgotten, he's forsaken, but he hasn't. Nehemiah is going to find out that God had not in any way forsaken. How about a heart after God to care? You know, you won't care about things. You won't care about people. You won't care about suffering unless you first have a heart after God. Love the Lord thy God with thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Then you'll actually care. Uh, number three, obedience to God. Nothing happens until we obey God. Nehemiah had to obey God. The people had to obey God. Nothing happens until there's obedience. Rebuilding what was broken. God wants us to be repairers, rebuilders. The New Testament says we're to be ministers of reconciliation. Did you know that? We're to help bring reconciliation to people that things are broken down in, in their lives. How about the sovereignty of God? Thank goodness for that, right? When we still get it wrong... God still gets it right. Isn't that great? The sovereignty of God. He's still in control. Hard work and diligence. Uh, Jesus uh, had much to say uh, about a lazy servant, that God would have us to be diligent, hardworking, put our hands to the plow, to labor in the vineyard. Hard work and diligence was going to be required. God was going to do his part, but we'll have to do our part. The impact of commitment. And the reason why many Christians don't commit to anything is if they commit, they'll have to follow through with it. So if you don't commit, then you have no responsibility. You can just kind of sit back and, well, somebody else will get it done. Total dependence upon God. Even if we do commit, guess what? We still need God's help. You know, I'm committed to, to preaching. I'm committed to preparing. I'm committed to studying. I'm committed to praying. But... I still, unless the Holy Spirit anoints me, it is absolutely nothing. You can be committed to being a great mom, a great dad, but you still need God's help, don't you? You need total dependence upon God. Yeah, Lord, I'll go, but uh, this is kind of like walking on water. I'm not really good at that, right? No one is. Total dependence upon God. Uh, the impossible is possible with God. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible, even things that haven't happened for nearly 100 years. Unified hearts and teamwork. Um, the best teams are unified teams, and God wants to unify this team uh, of Calvary Chapel Richmond, but more than a team, we're a family. He wants to unify the heart of a family. Many families, we think they're, they're broken down. God wants to mend them and unify them. How about facing and defeating opposition? Are you facing any opposition in your life? I say, yeah, I face it all the time. God wants to bring you to a place of victory in defeating that opposition. The opposition wants to uh, cause us to run and hide. Uh, how about a passion for holiness? God doesn't say to pursue happiness, but he wants us to pursue holiness. Uh, the power of God's written word, read and taught. We're doing that this morning, right? Uh, Ezra later in the book, will actually read. Um, and so the books will be opened. The scrolls, the scriptures will be read and taught. And there's great power in that. 
churches that have stopped using the word and have adopted other things, there's no power there. You might be able to give some kind of good life hacks, but there's no power in that. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Revival and renewal. God doesn't want to just have people hear truth, but be transformed by truth. And that's a work of revival. That actually does a transformational work. And then lastly, finishing and completion. How many like to finish stuff? Are you saying, no, I like everything undone. No, God wants to bring things to completion. He wants to finish the job. Now, a couple of the historical footnotes before we move on. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know in your Bibles it's Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Those books were originally one book. They were originally one big scroll. They were, they were just one book. Um, later, they were divided into two separate books. Um, and they are two separate time periods. Ezra's things, the things that Ezra did is reintroducing the law, going and, and rereading the scriptures to the people. That took place about 13 years earlier than what we're seeing right here with Nehemiah. So it is a different time period, but not far off. 13 years ago is not so, so, so far in our, our minds. Another noteworthy footnote, you've heard of Esther, right? The book of Esther, Queen Esther. Um, God used her to save the Jewish people from extermination from an evil man named Haman who was there in the Persian Empire. Well, Artaxerxes, the current king, as Nehemiah is writing this, and well, actually we believe Ezra wrote it. We believe Ezra wrote it, but as Nehemiah is being, uh, what took place there is being uh, written down by Ezra. Uh, Artaxerxes, as I mentioned earlier, is the current king. But Artaxerxes was... Um, I should say Esther, was the stepmother of Artaxerxes, okay? Esther was the stepmother of Artaxerxes. So that being the case, it kind of makes a lot of sense that Artaxerxes would be a little bit kind and favorable to the Jewish people, right? Because his stepmother was Esther, and Esther would always probably say, look, God used me to save these people, and God may use you to do a great work in them. God may bring something to pass where he's going to use you, and sure enough, it will end up being Nehemiah as his cupbearer in his life. So it's very likely that uh, Artaxerxes was influenced favorably by Esther, and this would end up manifesting in his interactions with Nehemiah. And one final item related to prophecy, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel, where Daniel prophesies of what will take place even to the entrance of Jesus um, at, the, um, uh, at the week of Passover. That's 70 weeks of Daniel, 70 uh, weeks of seven years. Uh, that begins with Artaxerxes' decree, which will take place in chapter 2 at 445 B.C. So, that help you with the backdrop? You understand the time frame, who the king was, why Daniel was in um, Susa. Now, it's possible that Daniel, not Daniel, um, Nehemiah, I had mentioned Daniel a second ago. It's possible that Nehemiah had had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem with Ezra 13 years earlier, but chose not to. It's also possible that he didn't have a choice in the matter. If the king says, you're my cupbearer, guess what? You're not going back. You have a job, they can go, your family can go back, your friends can go back, but you have a job here, and so, you know, they can send you postcards, they can send you pictures and stuff like that, but you, 
can't go back. So we don't know why uh, exactly, whether Nehemiah never went back to Jerusalem, even though some captives had returned, quite a few had returned. Many chose to stay. Many of the Jewish people stayed in captivity. Why? Because they ended up liking it in Persia better than what they thought they would like it back in their homeland. Because, you know, Persia had like Target stores and malls and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, it had really cool stuff. It had Disney World and all the fun stuff. Uh, it didn't have those things, kids, you know, if you're wondering. But it had stuff like that. They were a modern, they had all the creature comforts, and many of the people had actually started to follow some of the uh, pagan uh, deities and things like that. And they just fell in love with the Persian lifestyle. Now, that doesn't appear to be Nehemiah. It doesn't appear that he fell in love with the Persian lifestyle. It doesn't feel that he started worshiping a different God. We can see here that he has the heart of God, so he stayed faithful to God, but for whatever reason, he had not been able to go back to Jerusalem. Now, once he hears the news about Jerusalem, he's probably glad he's not there, right? Well, if you, if you ask, hey, how's things going down there in Texas? Well, everyone's in distress, and everything's burned down, and the wall, well, I'm, we were thinking about moving, but now we're not, right? So he wouldn't necessarily want to be there, but his heart is there, and that's what we want to take a look at this morning. When we care, and I have three things that you can just briefly jot down as we go through asking, absorbing, and awakening. This takes uh, shape in the first four verses here as he asks this question. He has this dialogue about what's going on in Jerusalem, and then we see his response. The first thing, if you're taking notes under this asking, uh, it says here, it came to pass in verse 1, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th years, as I was in Sushan, or Susa, the citadel, the citadel being uh, the fortress there. And this is uh, November, December time frame uh, on the Jewish calendar. November, December in 446 B.C. This is four months before the month of Nisan, and the month of Nisan is where chapter 2 begins. So when we get to chapter 2, that's where we'll take a look at Nehemiah's position as cupbearer. Uh, there's a lot more detail about being a cupbearer than maybe you might have thought. Uh, it wasn't some little uh, low-level thing where here's your cup, you know, we'll look at that. Uh, but this morning we're looking at his heart and the heart that took place and showed forth in this meeting. As I mentioned, it was the 20th year of Artaxerxes' 41-year Persian rule. So Artaxerxes had a 41-year rule. You think four years of a presidency are a long time, 41 years. Uh, and it's during this time in the 20th year, so almost smack dab in the middle of his rule and reign, that Hanani, it says, and then Hanani, one of my brethren, came with the men in verse 2. <clears throat> Hanani and a group of these Jewish men, uh, they've made the 900-mile journey from Jerusalem to Susa. So they've made this 900-mile trip, and it would have been a fairly lengthy trip. Uh, they're not doing it on a horseback haul, and they're, they're in a caravan. Now, their precise reason for the trip is unknown. We don't know exactly why they've come back from Jerusalem to Susa. It may have been to bring an official report to the king or to the Persian rulers. It may have been to secure or purchase some necessary supplies. Or perhaps they had come back for one reason that we understand around Thanksgiving, just to visit family, just to see those that had stayed behind, were not able to leave Whatever reason, hey, Nehemiah is not allowed to leave. King has a job. He can't go. Other family members like it here better. But just to come back 
and visit. Or, or just to tell, hey, here's, the, here's what's going on. 13 years later, it's, it's not a good scene. All are possibilities. But, uh, but the visiting the family perspective is absolutely happening right here in chapter 2. That we know for certain. Why? Well, Hananiah and Nehemiah are brothers. Not just Jewish brethren, they are brothers, same parents. How do we know that? Well, Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 2 tells us that Hananiah and Nehemiah are brothers. And Hananiah likely returned to Jerusalem uh, 13 years early. He likely went to Jerusalem with Ezra. And not just Ezra, but uh, the many other people that went. And at that time, he would have been there when the law was reintroduced. But at some point, he returns, and as he returns, and he's getting reacquainted with Nehemiah, they haven't seen each other for quite some time, there maybe some hugs, and how's the family doing, and all that stuff. Nehemiah then asks him a question, a two-part question, and it's as simple as, how are the people, and how is the city? How are the people, and how is the city? How are those that return home doing? How are they faring? Is the city making a comeback? Are the people being strengthened? Are, are, is the joy of the Lord returning? All of these things. How is our homeland? How is the city of God and the place of his temple? Now, the temple had been rebuilt. That's a great praise, right? Zerubbabel had already done that. The temple had been rebuilt. Now, it wouldn't become the grand scale that Herod the Great would later do, later do but Solomon's temple had been completely obliterated, which would have been one of the wonders of the world, Second temple had been rebuilt. Temple was there, but he knew the temple was there, but how's the city? How's the people? How's their heart? How are things going? There are a number of reasons you and I may ask a question in life, especially related to a people or a particular place. You and I, sometimes we might ask a question out of protocol. Well, we just know we should, right? I don't really care how you're doing, but I'm supposed to ask. How are you doing, right? Or it's just habit or good manners, or maybe we were curious, but only about one piece of the question. We're a little curious, so we ask that question. Sometimes we ask questions out of guilt. We just, oh, I guess I should, right? Perhaps it's out of good business sense. Like, if I don't ask good questions, I won't see profitability in the business, so I'm going to make sure I ask. Or we can ask it with sincerity, Right? Where it actually is coming, we really are asking because we really care and we really want to know. We truly want to know, how are you? How is so-and-so doing? How are the people there? How is the city? How is the nation? How is the ministry going over there? When I ask our missionaries in Uganda or, or Guatemala or India, I really want to know. Even though sometimes I know the answer I get is going to put me under responsibility. Oh, now I, I, well, it's too... Too bad there's nothing I can do to help. Well, a lot of times we, we avoid asking because we're afraid of what we're going to hear, right? But Nehemiah wasn't. He asked it anyway. Many will say or think, I'm so busy. I have so many important things on my own plate. I have my own things to occupy me that I'm going to hear no, see no, know nothing. I'm not going to ask anything because if I ask, I might then feel responsible to do something. Nehemiah wasn't afraid of what he was going to hear. Um, this is why many people don't ask ministries how things are going. It, yeah. I'm not going to ask the children's ministry because they're likely to tell me they need people. 
So if I don't ask if they need people, I'll pretend that I don't know they need people. And I can live in this figment of my imagination. Right? But Nehemiah asks, how is it going? He doesn't have a I don't want to know philosophy. Nehemiah asked because he genuinely cared. He wanted to know. And I believe he had already been thinking about the people, don't you? He had already been thinking about the city. Lord, I've been praying about the city. And out of the blue shows up his brethren, and he's probably been praying, what's going on there? I don't have a report. How's my, uh, how's my family doing? How are the uh, other Jewish people that had moved back? How is the city? And when we ask a sincere question, when we really actually care, we have to be prepared for the answer, whatever that may be. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not, right? But the reason a lot of times we will ask Jesus for things but I, I believe the thing Jesus really wanted to ask a lot of times is he wants us to ask him, Father, where am I at? Where am I really at? Because he'll identify. Once he identifies where we're really at, then we know where to say, Lord, that's where I need to surrender. And then the gates of heaven will open up. That's what we're supposed to be asking. Lord, where am I really at? And he'll in, then give us a heart to care. Let's take a look at what takes place as Nehemiah we already covered asking. How about absorbing here? What do I mean by that? The answer is heavy, isn't it? It's certainly not what he was hoping to hear, but I don't know that he was that surprised to hear it either. It wasn't what he was hoping. His brother and the men, uh, you know, we wish we had better news for you kind of thing. You asked. We, we were hoping you wouldn't ask. We wish we had better news, but it's not a good situation. The people are in fear and dread. They're in reproach. They're being mocked. They're being intimidated. The walls have not been fully rebuilt. There's big gaps in the walls. The city gates, they're wide open. Anyone could come at any time and re-slaughter all of us, is what he was basically saying. At any time, we're sitting ducks. The people remain in distress. The city's unprotected. There's a lot of worries of attack. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel in distress or unprotected. Like there's not a wall around you that you don't have the help of the Holy Spirit. God wants to address that in your life. He wants to address that in all of our lives. The remnants of destruction and defeat, there's still constant reminders. Yes, the temple's been rebuilt. A lot of times people are saved, but they still are living in defeat, right? Yeah. The Holy Spirit might be resident in your life as far as salvation goes, but there's still this constant reminder Nearly 100 years after Babylon's destruction, the walls still not fully rebuilt. The people still see the constant uh, gates burned with fire, not closed up. And this constant threat and intimidation by the people around them saying, you were destroyed by Babylon, we're going to do it all over again. You're not going to survive. That temple, we're going to take that one out too. I mean, you can imagine the threats that they endured. And when this hits Nehemiah's ears... It wasn't the proverbial in one ear and out the other because he wasn't just asking to make conversation. No. It hit him like an unexpected wave of the ocean. You ever been just standing there at the ocean and then a, a larger set surprises you and just knocks you backwards? You'll see, if you just go look up AFV, Mary's Funny Home Video, they have a lot of these where people are just, hey, wait, you know, boom, you know, right? This is how the news hits him. It knocked him backwards. But it didn't just knock him backwards. Here's the thing. He already cared 
but it knocked him back with a deeper care. You might already care about something, but God wants you to take, take you to a deeper care of it. A care that goes beyond just noodling it to God saying, I'm going to use you expressly in this. He wasn't just uh, concerned. He was concerned enough that as he asked this question, the care and concern hits him with a depth and a sensitivity to his heart that he immediately, his physical changes. He begins to weep and to pray. We live in a society, I think you would agree, that is pretty numb to just about any type of news and information. Wouldn't you say Americans are pretty numb now to news? We're numb to it. Anything with legitimate substance and gravity is low on the level. If it's important, the Golden Globes or everything, they're hashtagging like crazy, right? But if it's actually important, it's not important. But if it's it, it is important, you know, people just kind of ignore it, numb to it. They might hear about it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. 60 people blown up, a big deal, you know. Um, let me check my phone. The worst tragedies are commonly met with prayers for so-and-so hashtags, and people move on. Everyone quickly moves on. The callous culture has infected the church, too. The church is equally callous in many respects today. Nehemiah wasn't callous. And the impact and response of embracing good news, well, that's not really understood either. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice, what? And to weep with those who weep. You know when people get saved, you know the response of the church for the most part? Hmm. <coughs> so got saved. Most people, you know, heaven breaks out in a rejoicing party, and the church doesn't care for the most part, all across the country. Someone gets saved, many in the body of Christ are ho on the angels are rejoicing. We should be rallying to these people when they get saved. Amen? Amen. Rallying to them. Come rejoicing, not weirding them out, but rallying to them. You know, be, be a little careful with it, too. You need the, you need the help of the Spirit on that, too, because uh, they don't quite know all the things you know just yet. So, But many, they're also equally disconnected from trials and the pain of others, just disconnected from it. Nehemiah wasn't disconnected. What, some, another question, what really brings tears to your eyes? What does it take to bring tears to your eyes? I was th we, we were having this discussion in one of the men's Bible studies. I said, you know, it's weird. David cried. Jesus cried. Job cried. Nehemiah cried. Joseph cried. These are great, and they weren't wimpy men, man. I dare you to walk up to David and call him a wuss, right? <laughs> well, he might pray for you. But again, he was a mighty man. Right? I mean, these are things that, you know, I, these, were, these were men of God, and they really had, you know, they had a heart, didn't they? They were men that had a heart. What, it, what does it take to bring tears to our eyes? God wants soft spirits, doesn't he? He wants soft spirits. Now, not just tears from pain, but also of joy, right? What would it take if someone gets saved? Does that moisten your eyes? Right? So you have the, the, the difficult situations. Can you weep with those who weep? But can you also really rejoice with the things that really matter? 
And it's the other kind of absorbing. There's other things. God wants to absorb the Word of God, not just, again, just kind of, I heard it, but it had no impact, but to absorb the Word of God. This Word was brought to him by his brother. It was specially from God to his ears. The last thing we want to look at this morning, awakening, awakening. We see his response. He absorbs it, he weeps, but he begins to pray. And not just begins to pray, he begins to fast with praying, right? Fast and pray. There's a fire and an urgency that is awakened in him. His routine is now disrupted. Food becomes a whole lot less important, but seeing God work becomes very important. As Nehemiah absorbs this bad news, his response reminds me of Jesus. Remember, he was so heavy, he looked over Jerusalem, and he goes, how I long to gather you. And, of course, Jesus would, just a few days later, go all the way to the cross. I mean, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just that he was absorbing, but he was actually going to now take action. He was going to finish the work that God had put before him. See, God is, when God awakens, if God softens our heart to something, and then he awakens our heart to it, he's not just awakening us that we just know something about it. He's now, now I'm going to have you come into the throne room of my grit and start to pray over it, to intercede. We'll never take a step forward in actually bringing about any steps of victory until we first prayed, until we first intercede. Uh, say, well, I don't witness to anybody, don't care about lost souls. I kind of wish I did. You start praying, God, change my heart, and all of a sudden, you'll start having opportunities. It first starts by absorbing it first Lord, asking lord i know lord test me is my heart rightness god would say well currently it's not okay lord change my heart absorb these scriptures that i'm reading he starts to change now lord what can i do awaken me to the power of the holy spirit in my life and he's driven to prayer he's driven to fasting not just sitting in the presence of god and pleading for god's comfort and counsel and wisdom but saying lord use me However way, we'll, we'll look at this next week. We'll look a lot at his prayer. Uh, but understand that Nehemiah, he was already awake spiritually. But he's awakened to a different level. Many times I wake up and I'm already awake, but I'm much more awake a little later. You ever been there? You can be awake and become more awake than you currently are. After I do a workout, I feel way more awake and way more invigorated than before I did a workout. Because you know, even my eyes change. I see more clearly that you're not as blurry. But you were awake. You were technically awake when you first got up, but you probably didn't want to be given any kind of responsibility at that moment, right? You didn't want to be speaking up here at that moment or anywhere else for that matter. Um, last week... You were awake, but when you walked out into negative two, you really got awake, right? You, you found a vitality that wasn't even there seconds earlier. You reached a different level of alertness and awareness. And God wants, even when we are awake, he wants to make us more awake. Thomas Edison said, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. They miss opportunity. Spiritually speaking, the same is true. There's a lot of spiritual opportunities. God says, look, the fields are ready. They're white. They're already ready. You're awake, but you're not awake. You're partially awake. And you're just kind of, well, I, I, I don't want to see that. 
This is true of ministry and standing in gaps and praying. God says, I want you to be awakened to it to the point that you actually respond to it, not just know about it, but respond to it. If many in the church were honest, they'd have to admit many in the church would have to, I'm talking about the larger body of Christ as a whole, they'd have to admit that they like being half asleep, spiritually speaking. They like being half asleep as long as they're not bothered or burdened by anything that would take them out of right where they're at, especially anything of eternal importance. I don't want to know that stuff. I might, I might find myself caring. If I might, if I'm caring, I might, I might shed a tear. I might start praying, and that's going to mess up our plans. That's a deception, by the way, from Satan. That is an absolute deception. We will realize it's a deception when we meet Jesus face to face. Or we can say, right now, we already know it's a deception, so I reject it out of hand. Right? We know it's a deception. The question is, will we live with the deception or we say, no, Nehemiah said, I'm not going to live that way. I need to know what's going on, and I need to have it impact me in such a way that it causes me to intercede. See, God wants to light a spark of sincere care, and then he wants to fan that spark well beyond what it started with. Nehemiah cared before about the state of Jerusalem. He cared before about the lives that are there, but now it's consuming his heart. Now it's changing him. I've talked to people like this. I've said, you know, they're already Christians. They said, but what, what changed it now that you are on fire for the Lord? God got a hold of my heart, and I realized that I basically was, I kept the doors closed to all these things that the Holy Spirit wanted to do in my life. I didn't want it. We'll look more at this prayer next week and has God's fully awakened. But this is my prayer for us. That God would awaken us to truly desire his work in our lives. Truly desire. Not just be able to say. A lot of verses are easily, easily said but not easily lived, right? That we truly desire in, in this church, in this family, in the next 52 days, the next 52 weeks. And I'm going to actually have um, uh, some men pass out. I have, eat, I have one of these for each of you. I don't know where you want to put it in your house, but you each get a handout. It has, what could God do in 52 days and the prominent themes? And just keep looking at them and say, Lord, boy, what kind of these themes, a passion for holiness, facing and defeating up, just start praying through them and looking at these things. They're going to be passing them out uh, any second now. So, um, you know, if you've got... Uh, um, so, you know, some... That was like magic, right? You know. But I want each of you to have them. So, you, so you're reminded, what does God want to do in you in the next 52 days, the next 52 weeks? Um, retroactively, two of those weeks are gone. We have 50 weeks left in the year. But what would God do in 2018? And again, this isn't, um, this isn't you know, to uh, make you feel... Uh, something that is emotional or anything like that. This is something that I believe God wants you and me to come before him and say, Lord, search my heart. Where am I at? Where am I really at? What would you, what would you, have, what would you do in my life? What doors have we kept closed? Sometimes on purpose. Sometimes we don't even know they're closed. I'll admit that. Sometimes we kind of we, that's, that's the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times he reveals to us blockers in our life that we didn't even know were there. Some of them we're aware of. Some of them we're not aware of. But the Lord will show us. I'm sure Nehemiah 
thought he cared as much as he could care. And God says, I can take you to another level of care. And here's the cool thing. When God does that, the impossible can happen. It's been almost 100 years. If you would ask Nehemiah, what would it take to rebuild the walls? He'd say, it's going to take someone a whole lot more than me because Ezra went there. You know what's the other cool thing about this? Last, this? Ezra was anointed by God. He brought them to Zerubbabel was anointed by God. His own brother, Hanani, was anointed by God. You'll see when we get further in this. Hanani was a godly man. He, he ends up in a leadership position. But for some reason, God had always, from eternity past, had Nehemiah in hand for this particular work. Isn't that interesting? The other guys were all anointed. Why not Ezra? Why not Hanani? Why not Zerubbabel? They did a good work, but they never rebuilt the walls. For whatever reason, you might be God's Nehemiah for a situation that only applies to you. Say, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I'm this, but doesn't matter. There's lots of little walled areas or rebuilding situations that is only handpicked for you. When Aaron was already in Egypt, he was, would you say that Aaron was a fairly anointed guy? He becomes the first high priest ever. But he was not the one that God had, no, 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 that's not you. Your brother way out in the desert is, has that job. Your job will be this. So in other words, the anointing on a Hanani or on an Aaron or on an Ezra is still an anointing, but for their specific work. God wants to awaken the Nehemiah spirit, if you will, in each person to what, what is it you're called to. He would have never expected it would be him. But he would then lead a work done in 52 days. This is, uh, I'm going to close with these last couple of things. Uh, Dr. Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley says, Your heavenly father isn't driven, limited, or intimidated by seeming impossibilities or complex earthly circumstances. Amen? Um, he is working powerfully to teach you to listen to him, to transform your character, and strengthen your commitment. That's what God wants to do. But he wants us first to listen. If we listen, we ask, Lord, where are we at? And we listen to his answer, he's going to show us. And when he shows us, he's going to change us. When he changes us, he'll use us to change others. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time again this morning. We ask, Lord, for the anointing work of your Holy Spirit, uh, not only on this study here this morning, but over the next I don't know how many weeks it'll take us to go through this, Lord, but we pray that your spirit would be upon this teaching, and Lord, you would stir the hearts of your people, and Lord, that there would be a great work done in us individually, in our families, and this larger church family. In the next 52 days, in the next 52 weeks, Lord, what would you do, and what could you do uh, if our hearts were surrendered, and we really, Lord, developed that caring spirit that has the heart after God that we see in Nehemiah, and Lord, we want to see in our own lives. Lord, we pray that uh, we would see you rebuild things that are broken down, that you would do the impossible, that you'd restore relationships, that you'd heal physically and spiritually in this room. And we ask, Lord, that we would be surrendered and yielded in a way that your spirit would move in ways we've never seen before. For you can do a fresh new work just like you did then, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.